Welcome to the Onassis Air Conversations. My name is Mirto Katsimicha. I'm a curator and cultural worker based in Athens and your host in this series of recorded encounters with the participants of Onassis Air. Founded on the principles of learning and doing with others, Onassis Air is an international research residency program in Athens initiated by the Onassis Foundation in 2019. They say that what happens in one place stays in that place. I cannot find a better way to describe all the things that have been happening inside the Onassis Air House since I first entered as a participant of the Critical Practices program in fall 2019. The truth is, it is not easy to transmit an open-ended process of relationing which is very personal and relevant to a specific place and moment in time. How can I then give you a glimpse into that process? Everything starts with a conversation. Throughout this series, I'll be speaking with the Onassis Air participants to shed light on their artistic practices and needs, as well as to reflect on ways of being and working together. Today, I am very happy to welcome Orestes Athanasopoulos, an artist and filmmaker based in Paris. Orestes works on long-term and participatory projects that look into informal cultural connections and the mechanisms of identity construction, often in relation to food production and consumption. Orestes is a participant of the School of Infinite Rehearsals Movement 7, with a collective research focus on the notion of community economies. In this conversation, We take food as a starting point to discuss his filmic practice and research interest into the emergence of communities. Orestes, welcome to Paliroom. Hi, Mirto. I'm really excited to be here today. Thank you for joining me. It's a great pleasure to uh, be in conversation with you. Um, I, from the little that I know you, I've noticed how food and cooking is an integral aspect of your everyday life but also an ongoing thread in your practice and especially its role in the formation of both individual and collective identities. So I would like to start this conversation by asking you, how did you start engaging with these questions in your practice? So like you mentioned, it's part of my everyday life. So I really like cooking. I've always enjoyed cooking and I've always been interested in exploring the world through taste. Also on a Random side note, one of my favorite activities when I go someplace is to see the way the food system is organized in local supermarkets. So this has always been a sort of personal passion of mine. And I also work with films. So preserving and manipulating images is the main, let's say, component of my practice. And I feel that food is a um, sort of sens- has a, this sort of sensorial memory quality for individuals and societies. Everyone has some kind of personal memory of food they were eating while growing up, uh, related to family or friends or specific situations. But at the same time, at the same time uh, each society has their own special foods for special occasions. Uh, it's going to be Easter Sunday next week and everyone's going to you know, play the red egg game that people do in Greece. That's a, a, like a collective memory activated through food. And also, uh, I'm, I'm fascinating by the stories that 
come through food. Um, I don't know. I think I mentioned it at some point. Um, the story about the Christmas cakes that my family or families from Asia Minor used to bake called uh, Isli, or my family calls them Ketedes. And you decorate them with a specific kind of tongs. The, the housewife that used to bake them decorated them with a specific kind of tongs. And the more pinches that were on the cake, um, the more sorrows the housewife had. So it was a way for her to communicate her service to the husband or the family in a way that she couldn't do it otherwise. Uh, that's my interpretation. But I think that um, this speaks tones um, about gender hierarchies within a society. And like I, f- I feel that food is a very relatable way to approach these things because of our own empirical connection to food. I don't know, taste feels like... Um, a very important way to recall these sort of memories that are very deeply ingrained. Um, but beyond the interest um, in the social and historical aspects of food, I also see humor as part of my practice, and I, I, I really enjoy uh, laughing and making people laugh. So at some point after um, a workshop, a cleanover workshop led by cooking sessions at uh, the Pistoletto Foundation, I accidentally ended up looking at a virus that infects greenhouse tomatoes. So I ended up looking at more of the structural issues of global food production um, through the form of a cooking tutorial and the figure of Tomato Man, a character <laughs> that kind of like represents the savior of infected crops. I don't know, that's how I sort of progressively got involved with food in different ways. Thank you for, for sharing this personal memory with your grandma. I think that everyone has this sort of uh, memory in relation to food. And for me, it's quite interesting how one flavor, one taste can uh, solicit memories from the past that are really, really hidden or uh, forgotten, of course. Um, I think that no other sense in our body can solicit so many memories and so many um, feelings. Uh, What I find rather interesting is that you take food as a starting point to not only reflect on the ways that it is produced and consumed, but also to trace ways through which we construct relationships. And this was quite apparent in your recent film, The Itinerary, which premiered recently in the Thessaloniki Documentary Film Festival, and we had the chance to sit together, to watch together, where you look closely into the formation of an alternative food network and how this relates to questions of belonging, but also into how food becomes the basis for the emergence of an informal community. Yes, that is true. Um... Perhaps I should say like a few words about the film. So the film basically follows a bus that delivers parcels to Greek people living abroad uh, all over Europe. So initially I was very much fascinated by this peculiar um, mode of transportation and the system that the bus had put in place and the sort of like haphazard way that it operates in. And at the same time, I was asking, when I started the project, I was asking myself questions 
about my own position in relation to Greece or Athens where I had grown up. I was still adapting to a living situation in a country where I didn't speak the language really. Um, but I quickly realized that there was much more under the surface, this sort of uh, informal network and a notion of belonging that you speak of. Um, I think that food was the glue that made the recipients parts of different concentric networks, uh, be that family or groups of friends of different countries, and that informed the perceptions of themselves as migrants abroad uh, through their own personal memories and understanding of, uh, like, let's say, national symbols like the Spanakopita. At the same time, both senders and recipients were made part of the buses network, regardless of their own like identity and how they related to, to Greece or abroad. And that helped them create this, the, the buses movement helped them create an orbital relationship with this imaginary elsewhere, uh, um, a homeland or the respective countries of the recipients for the senders. They kind of existed suspended in between two places. Where did you first encounter this bus? The first time was in Paris. Uh, it was very random. I was um, hanging out with a friend one night and she asked for some help um, because she was waiting for a, an olive oil delivery. And I said, okay, fine, yeah, I'll come with you to the post office. So, <laughs> so um, she, tell, she told me that actually it wasn't the post office and we had to go in the middle of nowhere at the edge of the city and wait for a bus. So we went there in the middle of the night, I think it was 11, and there were so many people waiting for stuff. And then the bus stopped on the roundabout in front of a church and started taking out uh, like lots of olive oil tins and coolers with feta and frozen meat in them and even like baked goods. Uh, he took out drugs. He took out like washing machines and I thought that this was um, insane initially. <laughs> it was amazing. And on the spot I asked uh, Yanis, the main person who runs the, the bus service, uh, to do a film with me and he agreed. There was no hesitation from his part. And two weeks later I did my first trip. Um, what, uh, where was this trip? Where did you start from and where did you end up going? I went from Paris to Athens. Um, yeah, and I think during that trip, I started understanding that there's something else going on because I met people who had been traveling on the bus for, I don't know, a year or two years. So they had, had been sort of like regular passengers. And I found also very fascinating the fact that we crossed Switzerland, the entire country, while listening to... Psychedelia by Anavisi on repeat. And the, just the scenery outside of the bus, like the mountains and the lakes and the perfect highways were so out of sync with the, the music and what was happening inside the bus that I felt like there is a very, like a bigger story than just uh, food delivery uh, there. Um, 
when uh, we watched the film, it was striking to actually observe this uh, intimacy that uh, the bus drivers were developing not only with uh, the senders and the recipients, but also with the, the passengers. Um, and I remember this uh, moment in the film when uh, there is a girl who is very late in uh, um, getting her food, her parcel, And so they have to divert the route and go and find her in another place to give her um, what she has to, um, the parcel that uh, has been sent to her. And there is this moment when the drivers are sort are in, into an argument about this whole thing that they spend hours on, on the way and they have to divert and go and find her. And then... Um, There is this very um, personal moment when the main driver says, yeah, but do you have kids? And uh, what am I supposed to do? She is waiting for the parcel. And I think this en encapsulates this sort of relationship, um, invisible perhaps, because they don't know uh, personally the people that send stuff. But uh, this connection that they're trying to make with the things that they are delivering and it was very um, moving for me but uh, <laughs> I'd like to move to the next question and um, from your experience and from your interest in food infra infrastructures how can food lead the way for um, a new kind of economy so um, perhaps I should yeah I should use your example as a starting point because I was interested in the way migrant identities were informed by this back and forth of the bus. Um, but I also quickly realized that the reasons that the, the people kept sending parcels didn't make any sense financially. So if people, even, even if they produce their own olive oil, uh, the process of packaging, shipping, and the labor behind it, uh, behind sending and receiving the olive oil, Um, on the uh, recipient's end made everything way more expensive than a simple trip to the supermarket or to the deli, whatever. So I think that these affective links that you mentioned, the emotional ties that are also the operational basis for the bus's economy um, inspire me to think about alternative economic paradigms that could move away or perhaps exist in parallel with um Um, the prevalent exchange models. And at the same time, I had noticed um, that there was a lack of freely accessible spaces for the queer community in Paris, where I live. And I started to combine these thoughts into this idea about a queer community garden where people who are part of the community could gather to plant flowers and vegetables, watch them grow, and basically just chill there without having to give anything in return. So I started thinking... Um, about food as a way to help people think about these different modes of exchange uh, based on different um, different values in a way. And I think food in, in general is very powerful because it's one of people's basic needs. So it's very, a very powerful tool, tool to address these things, not only locally, but also on a wider scale. I mean, for example, Marcella here brought our attention to uh, the MST, like the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, which operates on a countrywide scale, if I'm not mistaken, and fights for land reforms and sustainable agriculture 
So, you know, it, it works into that way, but on a way bigger scale than just a simple local operation. Um, and yeah, I think I think that experiencing the, this sort of food system outside of monetary exchanges could potentially help shift mentalities towards a more equi- equitable way of relating to others. According to Gibson and Graham, that actually inspired us for this movement of the School of Infinite Rehearsals, the Uh, the term community described this never-ending process of being together, which is neither static or nor fixed. And this also somehow describes the way that the U.S. individuals were asked to come together and conduct your collective research on the topic of community economies, as uh, we just mentioned. And I'm curious to hear how did this process of exchange and sharing took place during the seven weeks? So we all had very different approaches to community economies, um, but there were thematic overlaps. So it took some time in the beginning until we could put these ideas together and come up with some sort of common principles about our collective research. Um, I know that scale was mentioned by someone, the negotiation of principles, affective debt. There were lots of things that seemed semi-coherent, but then it ended up um, they ended up coming together um, when we came up with a structure during the, our COVID week, when we all got COVID. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to split our time initially between theoretical and practice sessions, which would mean that on the one hand, we would try to explore these concepts that we're, we're interested in theoretically. Um, and then we would try to implement these concepts into some sort of practical practical way uh, if we could agree on something. Uh, for example, we read a, a, a text by Gravit Greber on gift economy, uh, which led to an interesting discussion on how communities are constituted and around what brings people together. I remember there was a, a, a very interesting quote in the text about how sharing is one of life's bigger pleasures. And also it was related to food that somehow really stuck with me. So we had like this discussion about pleasure being one of the main principles that um, uh, constitute a community, a community the way we envision it. And yeah, so this also led us to think about this idea of pleasure activism that was mentioned at some point in our earlier discussions. this concept, uh, which was elaborated by an activist called Adrian Marie Brown. And the way I understand it, it basically says that social justice projects should essentially be pleasurable. pleasurable. Otherwise, um, they are not sustainable. And I think um, I I was trying to find um, more information about it, and I read an interview by by her where she mentions that she gives the example of food at parties and how people are more naturally inclined to come back to projects or situations where the food is good so, <laughs> and organic and local and whatnot. So I found, I don't know, I think it's something that <laughs> might be important for me to explore further. What was uh, uh, an anchor point that brought all of your individual interests together? Was, was there one? I'm not sure if there was only one thing that I could point to and say this was it. Um, I think there were different overlapping things. Uh, I think autonomy and scale were a big part of our discussions. 
but not, again, not everyone was interested in that. Um, then affective relationships was also, I think, a common interest in, for some of uh, people in the group. Again, not everyone was interested in everything. But what I what was actually, I think it wasn't an anchor point as such, but then we were thinking also that we were, as a group, part of a community economy ourselves. And we were trying to explore the way this our little community economy operated. So what we decided was that we would add a third kind of sessions in which we would share our skills, uh, in addition to the theoretical and practice practical sessions. And so its member of the group got to ask the group for help with whatever they needed. I, I for example, asked um, for a brainstorming session about my queer community garden, which I found very valuable in the end. Um, I'm glad that uh, you mentioned the group as being a, a form of a community economy itself. I, I was thinking exactly the same because you had a, a certain kind of resources that you had to share, you had to um, collectively negotiate on the space and time that you spent together. And um, thank you for also bringing up the the notion of pleasure, which I think should be part of uh, any community and we shouldn't leave it out. Um, before we close, um, I had uh, an, one more question in, in relation to what you mentioned before as this invisible um, labor that was happening, for example, uh, in the bus situation. And I think that um, this invisible time of labor also um, brought you together as a group. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, I guess what we re- we realized that most of us were involved in the art world in one capacity or another. So when we started thinking about how we could apply our theoretical discussions, um, we kind of naturally, I feel, drifted towards the local art communities. And um, I think Felipe had... No, I'm sure Felipe brought up this idea about the dead time that is spent on applying to things which is very much part of the art world economy and how this this sort of invisible labor is never remunerated. So we initially had this idea to um, invite people to bring a rejected application to the closing party for which they would get money in return. But let's say time and institutional constraints led us to a sort of pared-down version (laughs) of this artistic gesture um, in which people got goodies that we had laid out on a table in exchange for a rejected application. Uh, We had also discussed um, annoyed ideas about a resource-sharing platform between the members of the artistic communities um, on a local and on a wider scale. And we had also thought about creating an, a different system outside of just an artistic gesture for remunerating this sort of dead application time. And I still think that these are viable ideas and that I would like to explore further. It was just that I guess we didn't have enough time to move forward forward with that. Mm, yeah, time is always uh, an issue. Um, but it, it's interesting to, to hear from you how you uh, both looked inside the, 
the group uh, and outside in within the artistic community, of course, but inward and outward. I uh, one of the main moments that I uh, remember from our early, very early discussion. I think it's also part of um, the uh, Gibson Graham's notion of community economies is this idea of like concentric circles that we're all part of different communities that expand outward uh, in an outward uh, fashion so I think that at least for me that kind of influenced my perception of the reverberations of different groups that we belong to Mm, and how perhaps they they relate they interrelate well, before we close uh, this discussion today, I'm curious to know what's next for you. You mentioned the community garden, of course, but um, I'd like to hear now that you're going back to Paris, what are you embarking on? So I will be going back to Paris later today. And apart from the community garden, I have been uh, thinking about a film project that I wanted to start for a while. Uh, it's also in a community, but a community of cats and the women who feed them um, at the um, Parc de Belleville, which is really close to where I live. I, there's something really interesting that I find about uh, reciprocal interspecies relationships. And I read in a book by an author called um, Vincent Desprez that cats mark their territory in a spatiotemporal way meaning that they leave uh, an order that fades over time so other cats can notice um, when the previous cat was there. And I find, I find this way of like, uh, relating to space and time uh, very uh, cinematic and it had a very strong cinematic potential. So I want to embark on that. And then also next year, I will be in Athens again um, for a project on the history of uh, the Greek pita and the flat flatbreads in the Eastern Mediterranean in general as a um, symbol, let's say, of um, transnational identities. Orestes, thank you so much for being here today. It was a pleasure to talk with you and uh, I wish you all best. Thank you, Mirto. It was a, I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you want to listen to more conversations, please subscribe to our channel. You can find more about the UNASSE residency program and each participant at www.onasses.org. This series is produced by UNASSE Thanks to Nikos Kolias, the sound designer of the series, and to Nikos Liberis for providing the original music intro theme.